Well, throughout the season of Advent, we are going to be looking at portions of St. John's writings, both in his gospel and the book of Revelation. But we're going to be looking at what are called the I am sayings of Jesus. There are many of them in, in John's gospel, and we'll be able to look at at least six of them during this series. And Mary, at the Annunciation, where Gabriel appears to her, is is told that she will bear a, a child whose name is Jesus, which in Hebrew is Joshua, which uh, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves, quite literally, that God saves and this one will be the Messiah and that he will sit on the throne of David. And in these I am sayings, Jesus pretty much explains what that means. And he takes upon himself a number of very concrete designations of, of what it means to be Messiah and links himself in with that truth through these I am sayings. And so today we're going to look at John 14, verses 1 through 7. Jesus, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Let's pray. Lord, work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to draw us into yourself and to so understand that road that you walk, which is the road that we walk with you and in you. Lord, show us how you are the way, the truth, and the life, for we pray in your name. Amen been thinking a lot about names as I have prepared this series and a story came to mind that my son shares. His name is Justin and Justin talks about a time when he was asked in a, I think in a classroom or in some sort of small group somewhere when he was in college to share his name and a little bit about how he got that name or where that name came from. And he tells the story, and it's pretty funny actually. He always tells a story by saying, well, my father is a Presbyterian minister, and he named me after a second century martyr named Justin. <laughs> and the question then follows, well, and why did he choose that name? Or why did your parents choose that name? And, and what's so significant about Justin Martyr that they chose that? And he said, well, he died. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
it's actually a great joke on his part. It, it's, it gives a testimony to his sense of humor, but that's not really why we chose the name. Marianne, indeed, did give me a lot of leeway in choosing Justin's name, but I chose it, and she agreed with me, or let me have the name at least to give to Justin. I chose it because it means upright one. It, it means one, a seeker of justice. It, it means justice itself. And you know what's interesting to me, and I think Marianne would corroborate this, is that Justin is someone who is profoundly interested in fairness, and he kind of lived into that name. Uh, he's 33 now, and, and we kind of marvel. We weren't very original because there's lots of Justins, just like there were lots of Davids in 1957, there were lots of Justins in, in 1988. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but, it's a name that stuck, and it's a name that bore into him in a way that feels really good. And names are very important. They're very important. They aren't just labels that we slap on things and, and people. They are extremely important. And Shakespeare works with this idea in his play Romeo and Juliet, where he has the characters say, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Well, in that particular case, the names that were being talked about were Montague and Capulet, the two warring families in that play. And Romeo and Juliet were each a part of one of those families, and it didn't turn out well for them. So there was a lot in the name, because those names led to them dying and the great tragedy that ensues in, in that play. Names are important, especially when it comes to names for God, I think. They are things that we give God for the most part. They are things that, that point to what we think about God, what we believe about God. They can influence what we believe about God. They have a way of putting forward who we have concluded that God is and how we will relate to God. And in some ways, the Jews are better at understanding this whole notion of the power of the name than we are, especially with respect to God, because there's a hesitance in Judaism to even use a name for God. In fact, some branches of Judaism refer to God as Hashem, which in Hebrew just means the name. And they don't say it. And the origins of this practice really go back to Exodus 3, the story of Moses and the burning bush. Moses encounters this bush while he is tending his father-in-law Jethro's flocks out in the wilderness, and he sees this bush that is burning hot, white hot, and yet it's not consumed by the fire. What a great metaphor for God. Power and heat that does not consume what it's burning in. But Moses encounters this burning bush. He is told to take off his shoes and he hears the voice of God and has this experience with God in Exodus 3 where God calls him. God encounters him and calls him and, and says, you are going to go to your people and you're going to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. And you're going to worship me in the wilderness with your people. What Moses was going to do in God's call was to reconnect God's people with, with God. 
Moses then asks a question, and it's a great question, uh, and I'm going to read it for you. In Exodus 3, verses 13 and following, he says, But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And this is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. Tell them simply, I am sent you to them, and that that's the one for whom you're speaking. Because I have no name that can fully describe who I am other than to point to my very being and say that's who I am. And so therefore there is a, a little thing that happened in Hebrew that this whole notion of, of I am created a four consonant word for God that scholars in more recent days have come to believe was pronounced Yahweh, but it was never said. Whenever those four letters were seen, Hebrews instead would pronounce the word Adonai, which means Lord. And it's interesting because initially Hebrew didn't have any consonants that were actually written down. They were assumed, and it wasn't until much later that the consonants were put in with these dashes and points. And so when the Masoretic fathers or rabbis basically went in and translated the text and pointed the text, they pointed those four letters with the consonants that go with the word Adonai. And I know this is really Bible nerdiness here. But essentially what that meant is that when the English translators went to translate the King James Bible, they thought, what is that word with those four Hebrew consonants and these vowels? It seems like it's the word Jehovah. But every time a Jew read that word, they would pronounce it Adonai because it was never right to say the name Yahweh because no one really had the right to take that name on their lips. So the whole thing about Jehovah is just basically a misunderstanding of the Hebrew. <laughs> and that's a name that we created uh, for God in our translations, English translations of the Old Testament. But what those four letters were is actually a form of the verb to be. I am. And it was a signal that you really can't say the name because no name could ever Describe this one who is the creator of all things. And so it was an act of reverence to not say the name. It's an act of reverence to call God Hashem, the name, and to have a variety of names that are used for God. But all of them understood not as the name for God, but as a metaphor that gets at some of what God is like. And what's interesting is that for Jesus to use these 
I am sayings, for him to say things like he does later on in John's gospel, before Abraham was, I am, is to really come to the verge of that line of blasphemy, if not to walk boldly over it and flout it in the faces of the religious aristocracy. It makes him, to say the very least, controversial. And what he says in John 14 today, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is equally as cheeky. And so as we talk through this text, one of the things that we see that Jesus in chapter 13 talks to his disciples about the fact that he is going away. He is predicting his betrayal and his death. And the disciples are confused. And if you look at the last part of of chapter 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. This one who said, follow me, says, no, don't follow me anymore. Okay. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Very famous text of Peter professing absolute loyalty and Jesus saying, hold your horses. You you probably won't go down that road. And so Jesus goes on and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be there also. So on the one hand, he says, you can't follow me. But he says here, you will be with me. There may appear to be some lag time. But you will be with me. And then verses 4 and 5, he goes on, And you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, you know the way where I am going. And Thomas says, no, we don't know the direction. We don't know the destination. We don't know where it is you are going to end up. And then Jesus comes back in verses 6 and 7 and says, yes, you do. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. You do know the way and you do because you know me. And if you know me, you will know the Father. And we're not really talking about a destination We're talking about an eternal relationship. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way. I'm the hadas in Greek. I'm the road. I'm the path. I'm not just the one who shows you the path. I'm not your tour guide to give you directions. I'm the road itself. I'm the path. Relationship with me is the road. It's not an idea, it's not an abstraction, it's a concrete reality of being in relationship with another being. I'm also the truth. I'm not merely the teacher 
who exposes you to ideas who are true, I'm the very truth itself, and relationship with me is the way in which you discern that truth. Truth is not separate from the relationship. And I'm the life. I'm not the gatekeeper who grants you access to life. I'm life itself. And the way you discern that and receive that is in relationship. And then later in chapter 14, he says, I am in the Father and the Father's in me and you are in me. And essentially says, this is not about ideas that get you in. This is about relationship. This is about union. This is not about getting access to a destination. This is about dwelling in, abiding in, residing in the place for which you were created. And literally, that is the heart of God. Really what this text is about is working with two very important questions that we all ask ourselves and that we keep asking ourselves and that we never quite get to the bottom of in this life or I think in the next. They're important questions that foster the relationship for which we were made and they're these simple questions. Who are you, Lord, and who am I? Why did you make me and how can I live into that reality? How can I be in you? And find the space for which I was created in your heart. It's as Augustine says, God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And Jesus is not really talking about a place or a destination that we strive to enter. Nor is he speaking about an accomplishment that we achieve. He's talking about resting in a relationship for which we were made. To put it another way, I don't simply point to the point. I am the point. So follow me. Come and see. Abide in me. All very concrete images of what it means to believe because it's so much more than what goes on here or what is said here. Essentially, what he's saying is be with me. And it's hard to understand. And so because it's hard to understand, we often turn it into a task or reduce it to rules or some sort of procedure to to follow and to strive to keep up. Strategies, if you will. I love the 101st Psalm, but it kind of gets at this question. It asks the question very directly. The psalmist says, I will sing of loyalty and justice to you, O Lord. I will study the way that is blameless. In other words, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can to be righteous and holy. And then he asks a question. When shall I attain it? How will I know I'm there? It's a great question. Teach me the rules. Show me the way. Define blameless for me so that I can abide by those rules and I'll keep those rules and I'll stay on the path. But when am I going to get there? 
When am I going to arrive at this destination of, of righteousness? When can I relax? When can I finish this quest? When will I rest? And I think Jesus' reply in this text is pretty clear. You can rest right now. And begin the resting that you will do for eternity. You can rest right now in me. And when you do, you'll know that I am always taking you deeper and deeper and deeper into the reality of God's love. You'll never arrive. You'll always be arriving at some new awareness of what that means. Because as you experience more and more of my loving kindness toward you, you will grow in your knowledge of who God is and who you are. So Paul's prayer in Ephesians is what I want to close with. It's a prayer for this very awareness. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Verse 14 of chapter 3 from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray for a process that will continue for eternity of growth in love, in other words. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I pray that you will be on that journey where you are looking at the breadth and length and height and depth and realizing at every moment that that just keeps expanding. And that you will know the love of God and keep on knowing it. Let's pray. Take us beyond the limits of our own stunted imaginations, Lord, and the names that we have settled upon for you. And show us all of your names. Help us to grasp what we have not been able to grasp and to rest in it. And so carry us in that place that we were made for, which is your heart. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.